Major publishers were wise enough, of course, not to show even a smidge of interest in putting out my book of poems, so I ended up basically self-publishing it. Fortunately, a friend of mine ran a printing company so I could print it up on the cheap. Simple binding, 500 numbered copies, each and every one signed by yours truly, Haruki Murakami, Haruki Murakami. Haruki Murakami. Predictably, though, hardly anyone paid it any attention. You'd have to have pretty odd taste to lay down good money for something like that. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Books podcast. I'm Nina Norms and today I'm really excited to introduce an audiobook extract from Haruki Murakami's collection of short stories, First Person Singular, translated by Philip Gabriel and narrated by Kataro Watanabe. The eight masterly stories in his new collection are all told in the first person, from nostalgic memories of youth, meditations on music, and an ardent love of basketball, to dreamlike scenarios, an encounter with a talking monkey, and invented jazz albums. Together, these stories challenge the boundaries between our minds and the exterior world. Occasionally, a narrator who may or may not be Murakami himself is present. Is it a memoir or fiction? We'll leave it to you to decide. The Occult Swallows Poetry Collection I'd like to make this clear from the start. I love baseball, and what I really love is actually going to a stadium and watching a live game played out right in front of me. I slap on my baseball cap and take along my glove in case I happen to catch a foul ball from the infield seats or home run ball if I'm sitting in the outfield seats. Watching broadcasts of games on TV doesn't do it for me. I always get the feeling I'm missing something vital. Like with sex when you... Hold on, let's not go there. In any event, watching baseball on TV robs me of that heart-pounding excitement of a live game. At least that's how I feel. Though if I were asked to list the reasons why and explain them all, I doubt I could. To be clear, I'm a fan of the Yakult Swallows. I wouldn't say I'm a wildly enthusiastic, devout fan, but I do consider myself a pretty loyal supporter. At least I've cheered on the team for a long time. I've been frequenting Jingu Stadium from back when the team was called the Sanke Adams. That's why I lived near the stadium. Actually, that still holds true. When it comes to finding places to live in Tokyo, that's my main condition, that the condo be within walking distance of Jingu Stadium. And unsurprisingly, I also own several team jerseys and baseball caps. Jingu Stadium has long been a peaceful, humble ballpark, not the sort of stadium setting any attendance records. What I mean to say is that the place is almost always a bit deserted. Except for rare occasions, it's never been sold out, and I can always get a ticket. 
By rare occasions, I mean like when you are out for a walk at night and encounter a lunar eclipse, or run across a friendly male calico cat at the neighborhood park. I mean, it's about as likely as those occurrences. But truthfully, I kind of enjoy how sparsely populated it is. I've always disliked crowds, even as a child. I don't mean to imply that the reason I became a Yakult Swallows fan is a half-deserted stadium. I'd feel sorry for the team if I said something like that. The poor Yakult Swallows and the poor Jingu Stadium. I mean, the section where the visiting team's fans sit always seems to fill up faster than the Yakult Swallows fan section. You could search the entire world and I doubt you'd find another baseball stadium where that's the case. So, why did I become a fan of that team anyway? What long and winding path led me to become a long-time supporter of the Swallows? What sort of galaxy did I cross to make the fleeting, dim star, the one that's the hardest to locate in the night sky, my own lucky star? It's kind of a long story, but... Under the circumstances, maybe I should touch on it. Who knows, but it might end up being a kind of concise autobiography. I was born in Kyoto, but we soon moved to the Kansai Kobe area, where I lived till I was 18, first in Shukugawa, and then in Ashia. When I was free, I'd ride my bike, or sometimes take the Hanshin railway line to see a game at Koshien Stadium, the home of the Hanshin Tigers. I was, as an elementary school student, naturally a member of the Hanshin Tigers fan club. You got bullied at school if you want. I don't care what anyone says. Koshien is the most beautiful stadium in all of Japan. Back when I was a boy, I'd rush to the stadium with my ticket in hand pass through the ivy-covered entrance and hurry up the dimly-lit concrete stairs. And when the natural grass of the outfield leapt into view and the brilliant ocean of green spread out before me, my little heart beat loudly with excitement for all the world as if a group of lively dwarves were bungee-jumping inside my tiny ribs. On the field, there is a storyline about to be played out amid the full array of cheers and signs and cries of anger ready and waiting. The players warming up, the uniforms still sparkling clean, the happy reverberation of the pure white ball striking the sweet spot of the bat as the players field fangos, the determined shouts of the hawkers selling beer, the fresh new scoreboard before the game begins. Yes, that's how. Without any room for doubt whatsoever, that's how baseball and going to the stadium has become an integral part of me. So at 18, when I left the Kansai Kobe area to go to college in Tokyo, I decided, like it was the most natural thing, to go to Jingu Stadium and root for the Sankei Adams. This was the closest stadium to where I was living, so I could root for the home team which to me was the very best way of enjoying watching baseball. Though, strictly speaking, 
Korakuen Stadium, the home of the Tokyo Giants back then, was a bit closer to my apartment. But there was no way I was going there. I mean, there are certain ethical standards you have to maintain. This was in 1968. The folk crusaders had a big hit then with I Only Live Twice. It was the year Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were assassinated, and there were student demonstrations on anti war day that occupied Shinjuku Station. Lining up all these events makes it sound like ancient history, but at any rate, that was the year I decided okay, I'm going to be a Sanke Adams fan from now on. Prompted by something, fate, my astrological sign, blood type, prophecy, or a spell. If you have a chart of historical chronology, I'd like you to write the following in small letters in one corner. 1968. This was the year that Haruki Murakami became a Sankei Adams fan. I'm ready to swear this before every god in the world, but at the time, the Sankei Adams had totally hit rock bottom. They didn't have a single star player. The entire team was obviously barely scraping along, and there were hardly any fans at the stadium except for when they played the Giants. To use an antiquated Japanese term, the black cuckoo was calling, meaning the place was deserted. The thought often struck me back then. That the team mascot shouldn't be the anime character Astro Boy, Iron Arm Adam in the original, but instead should be a black cuckoo. Though what exactly that kind of cuckoo looked like, I couldn't tell you. This was the age when the Tokyo Giants, under their manager, Tetsuharu Kawakami, ruled. Their home ground, Korakuen Stadium, was always sold out. Their corporate owner, the Yomiuri Shimbun Newspaper Group, used game tickets as a major sales strategy and worked hard to increase newspaper sales. The giant sluggers, Sadaharu O and Shigeo Nagashima, were national heroes. I passed by kids on the street who proudly wore their giant's baseball caps. But a kid wearing a Sankei Adams cap was nowhere to be seen. Perhaps those brave few who did were seen stealthily slinking down back alleyways, furtively weaving their way under the eaves. My gosh, where is there any justice left in the world? But whenever I had free time, and back then I was free most of the time, I'd walk over to Jingu Stadium and silently root for the Sankei Adams by myself. They lost much more often than they won, probably losing about two thirds of their games. But I was still young. As long as I could stretch out on the grass past the outfield, have some beers, and watch the game, occasionally gazing aimlessly up at the sky, I was pretty happy. I'd enjoy it when the team won the odd game, and when they lost, I'd console myself with the thought that. It's important in life to get used to losing. They didn't have bleachers in the outfield then, just a slope with a trampled down grass. I'd spread out a newspaper, 
the sunky sports paper, of course, and sit there, sometimes lying back. As you can imagine, when it rained, the ground got pretty muddy. In 1978, when the team won its first championship, I was living in Sendagaya, a 10 minute walk from the stadium, so I went to see games whenever I was free. That year, the Yakult Swallows, they'd changed their name to the Yakult Swallows by then, won their first league championship in the 29 year history of the franchise. And rode that wave all the way to victory in the Japan series. A miraculous year for sure. That was the same year when I was 29 too that I wrote my first novel entitled Hear the Wind Sing, which won the Gunzo Newcomers Prize. I suppose that's when you could call me a novelist starting then. I know it's just a coincidence, but I can't help feeling there's some connection, some karma at work in all this. But this was all much later. In the 10 years that led up to that moment, from 1968 to 1977, I witnessed a huge number, an almost astronomical number, at least that's the way it feels, of losing games. To put it another way, I steadily became accustomed to regular loss. Here we go again, another defeat. Like a diver carefully takes his time to acclimate to the different water pressure. It's true that life brings us far more defeats than victories, and real life wisdom arises not so much from knowing how we might beat someone as from learning how to accept defeat with grace. You'll never understand this advantage we'd been given, I often used to shout at the giant cheering section. Of course, I never actually shouted it aloud. During those long dark years, like passing through an endless tunnel, I sat in the outfield seats. To kill time while I watched the game, I scribbled down some poem like jottings in a notebook poems on the topic of baseball. Unlike soccer, with baseball, there can be a lot of downtime between plays. So I could look away from the field, jot down my ideas on paper without missing any runs. Let's face it, baseball is a sport done at a leisurely pace. Most of these poems were written during tiresome losing games when one pitcher after another was brought in to try to salvage the game. Oh, man. How many times did I watch that kind of game? The first poem in my collection was the following one. There are two versions of the poem a short version and a long one. And this is the long version. I added a few things later on. Right fielder, on that May afternoon, you're holding down right field at Jingu Stadium. The right fielder for the Sankei Adams. That's your profession. I'm seated in the back of the right field seats, drinking slightly lukewarm beer, like always. The opposing team's batter lofts a fly to right field, a simple pop fly. It arcs high up, a lazy fly ball. The wind has stopped, 
and the sun isn't an issue. It's a piece of cake. You raise both hands a bit and step forward about three yards. You got this. I take a sip of beer, waiting for the ball to drop. As straight as the ruler, the ball falls, precisely three yards behind you. Like a mallet lightly tapping the edge of the universe, there's a slight plunk. It makes me wonder, why in the world do I cheer on a team like this? This itself is a kind of riddle as huge as the universe. I have no idea if this could be called a poem. If you did, it might make actual poets upset, make them want to string me up from the nearest light pole. I'll pass on that, thank you very much. Okay, but then what should I call these? If there's a better name for them, then I'd like to know it. So for the time being, at least, I labeled them poems. And I gathered my poems into a book called The Yakult Swallows Poetry Collection and published it. If poets want to get all bent out of shape over it, then be my guest. This was in 1982. A little before I finished writing my novel, A Wild Sheep Chase, three years after I debuted as a novelist, if you could call it that. Major publishers were wise enough, of course, not to show even a smidge of interest in putting out my book of poems, so I ended up basically self-publishing it. Fortunately, a friend of mine ran a printing company so I could print it up on the cheap. Simple binding, 500 numbered copies, each and every one signed by yours truly, Haruki Murakami, Haruki Murakami, Haruki Murakami. Predictably, though, hardly anyone paid it any attention. You'd have to have pretty odd taste to lay down good money for something like that. I think I sold about 300 copies, all told. The rest, I gave away as souvenirs to various friends and acquaintances. Nowadays, they've become valuable collector's items and fetch unbelievable prices. You never know what's going to happen. I only have two copies myself. If only I'd kept more, I'd be rolling in dough by now. After my father's funeral, three of my cousins and I drank a ton of beer. Two of my cousins were on my father's side, around the same age as me, and the third was a cousin on my mother's side, about 15 years younger. We sat around till late at night, throwing back the beers. Beer was all we drank, and no snacks either, just an endless parade of beer. I'd never drunk that much beer in my life. By the end, about 20 of those large 21-ounce Kirin bottles stood empty on the table. How my bladder held out, I have no idea. On top of that, while we were downing all this beer, I stepped out to a jazz bar near the funeral home and had several Four Roses whiskeys on the rocks. I don't know why I drank so much that night. It wasn't like I felt any deep emotions or anything. I wasn't feeling particularly sad or empty. No matter how much I drank, though, 
I didn't get drunk, and the next day, I didn't even have a speck of a hangover. In fact, when I woke up the next morning, my mind was sharper than usual. My father was a dyed-in-the-wool Hanshin Tigers fan. When I was a kid, my father was in a foul mood whenever the Tigers lost. Even his facial expression would change. And if he had anything to drink, this tendency would get even worse. So, on nights after the Hanshin Tigers lost, I'd be extra careful not to do anything to upset him. Possibly that's why I never got to be, or never could be, a Hanshin Tigers fan. My relationship with my father wasn't what you'd call friendly. There were lots of reasons for this. But in the 20 years before severe diabetes and the cancer that spread throughout his body put an end to his life at age 90, my father and I hardly exchanged a word with each other. You could never label that a friendly relationship. At the very end of his life, we had a reconciliation of sorts, though perhaps it came too late to really matter. But of course, I do have some wonderful memories. When I was nine, in the fall, the St. Louis Cardinals played a goodwill game against an all-star Japanese team. The great Stan Musial was at his peak then, and he faced two top Japanese pitchers, Kazuhisa Inao and Tadashi Sugiura, in an amazing showdown. My father and I went to Koshien Stadium to see the game. We were in the infield seats along first base, near the front. Before the game began, the Cardinals players made a circuit of the whole stadium, tossing signed soft rubber tennis balls to the crowd. People leapt to their feet, shouting, buying to grab the balls. But I just sat in my seat, vacantly watching all of this happen. I figured that a little kid like me had no chance of getting one of those signed balls. The next instant, however, I suddenly found one of them in my lap. By total chance, it just happened to land there, plop, like some divine revelation. Good for you, my father told me. He sounded half shocked, half admiring. Come to think of it, when I became a novelist at age 30, he said almost the same thing to me, half shock, half admiration. That was probably the greatest, most memorable thing that happened to me when I was a boy. Maybe the most blessed event I ever experienced. Could it be that my love for baseball stadiums sprang from this incident? I took that treasured white ball back home, of course, but that's all I remember about it. Whatever happened to that ball? Where could it have possibly gone? I also included the following poem in the Yakult Swallows poetry collection. I believe I wrote it back when Osamu Mihara had taken charge of the team as their manager. This was the period I have the most vivid and fond memories of, for whatever reason. I was always fired up to go to the stadium back then, sure that something fun and unexpected was going to happen. A bird's shadow. 
An afternoon day game in early summer. Top of the eighth, the Swallows losing 9 to 1, or something like that. Their sixth pitcher, or something like that, someone I'd never heard of, was warming up. Right at the instant, the clear cut shadow of a bird raced quickly from first base over the green grass to where the center fielder stood. I looked up at the sky, but couldn't spot the bird. The sun was too bright. All I saw was a shadow, like a black cutout, falling on the grass. A bird-shaped shadow. Was this some lucky omen, or an unlucky one? I gave it some serious thought, but soon shook my head. Come on, knock it off. How could there ever be a lucky omen at a place like this? When my mother's memory started to get shaky and she couldn't live on her own anymore, I went back to her house in Kansai to get her ready to move out. I couldn't believe all of the junk, at least that's how it seemed to me, that she had stored away in boxes. She'd bought an unimaginable amount of stuff for reasons I couldn't fathom. For instance, one empty candy box was stuffed full of cards, mostly telephone cards, the kind people once used for payphones, with a few prepaid railway cards for the Hanshin or Hanky railways mixed in. All the cards had Tigers players' photos on them. Kanemoto, Imaoka, Yano, Akahoshi, Fujikawa. Telephone cards? Good grief! Where the heck are you supposed to use telephone cards these days? I didn't count them all, but there must have been over a hundred. I just couldn't get it. As far as I knew, my mother had no interest in baseball whatsoever. Yet, it was clear that she was the one who'd bought all those cards. There was solid proof. Had she become a rabid Hanshin Tigers fan before I realized it? For all that, she flatly denied ever buying so many Hanshin Tigers telephone cards. What are you talking about? She said. I do never buy those kinds of things. Ask your father. He'll know. So what was I supposed to do? My father had died three years before this. The upshot is that, although I have a cell phone, I've been walking all over, looking hard for the rare public phone, trying to use up these Hanshin Tigers telephone cards. Thanks to this, I've gotten to know their players' names pretty well, though most of the ones on the cards have either retired by now or have moved on to other teams. The Hanshin Tigers The Tigers used to have a player named Mike Reinbuck, an outfielder, a high-spirited, all-around nice guy. I wrote one poem in which he was featured in a supporting role. Reinbuck was the same age as me. He was killed in a car accident in the U.S. in 1989. In 1989, I was living in Rome, writing a long novel. So I didn't learn of his death at age 39 for quite some time. Italian newspapers, as you can imagine, weren't going to report on the death of a former Hanshin Tigers outfielder. 
This is a poem I wrote. Outfielders' Butts I enjoy gazing at the butts of outfielders. What I mean is, when I'm watching a slow-going losing game from the outfield seats by myself, how else can I enjoy myself besides staring at the outfielders' butts? If there's some other way, I'd sure like to know. I could talk the night away about outfielders' glutes. The swallowed center fielder, John Scott's butt, is beautiful beyond measure. His legs are ridiculously long and look as if they are suspended in the air, like a bold metaphor that makes your heart sing. Compared to this, the legs of the left fielder, Wakamatsu, are incredibly short. When the two players stand together, Scott's butt is about at the level of Wakamatsu's chin. The tiger's Rheinbuck has a butt so symmetrical you can't help but love it. Just one look, and it all makes sense. The butt of the Hiroshima Cops player Shane is deeply thoughtful, cerebral, reflective, you might say. People really should have called him by his full name, Shine Bloom, if for nothing else than to show respect for that one-of-a-kind butt. I was about to list the names of outfielders whose butts are not what you'd call attractive, but decided I'd better not. After all, you have to consider their mothers and siblings and wives and kids, if they have any. John Scott played outfield for the Swallows from 1979 to 1981. He once hit four home runs in a doubleheader. Twice he won the Diamond Glove Award, Japan's equivalent of the Gold Glove. Mike Reinbuck played outfield for the Hanshin Tigers from 1976 to 1980. Along with Hal Breeden, he was one of their cleanup hitters. He was a gutsy player who was very popular with fans. Richard Allen Scheinblum played outfield for the Hiroshima Cop from 1975 to 1976. He also played in an all-star game in the major leagues. His name was shortened to Shane in Japan. I don't mind, he commented, though I can't ride a horse. As a Yakult fan, I did once watch a Hanshin Tigers versus Swallows game at Koshien Stadium, the Tigers' home stadium. I happened to have an errand that brought me to Kobe, and I had the afternoon free. I saw a poster at the Hanshin Sanomiya station advertising a day game at Koshien Stadium and decided it'd be far too long since my last visit to Koshien. It had been over 30 years, in fact. Katsuya Nomura was the Swallows manager back then. This was when players like Huruta, Ikeyama, Miyamoto, and Inaba were at their peak. A happy time for the team, now that I think of it. So, naturally, the following poem wasn't included in the original Yakult Swallows poetry collection. I wrote it long after that collection was published. I didn't have a pen or any paper on me that day, so as soon as I got back to the hotel, 
I used the stationery in the room to scribble down this sort of poem. A memo that just happened to take the form of a poem, I suppose you could call it. My desk drawer is full of memos and fragments of writing like that. They don't actually serve much purpose, but I keep them nonetheless. An Island in the Ocean Current That summer afternoon, I searched for the Yakult Swallows fans section in the left field bleachers at Koshien Stadium. It took a long time to find it. Since the section for the Yakult fans was a tiny area, only five yards square, all around on every side were crowds of Tigers fans. It reminded me of the John Ford movie Fort Apache, the small troop of cavalry led by the obstinate Henry Fonda, were surrounded by a huge mass of Indians that blanketed the ground. The cavalry was cornered, backs to the wall, like a small island in an ocean current. They bravely raised a single flag in their midst. Now that I think of it, when I was in elementary school, I sat in these very seats watching Sada Haruo, a high schooler then play. This was the Spring National High School Baseball Tournament when his school, Waseda Jitsugyo High School, won. He was their star, batting fourth. The memory of that day is so very clear in my mind as if watching it from a backward telescope. So far away, yet so very close. And right now, I am surrounded by fierce Indians in pinstripes and under the Yakult Swallows flag, I raise my plaintive cheer. I've been away from my hometown for such a long time, and my heart aches here, on this tiny, solitary island in the ocean current. At any rate, of all the baseball stadiums in the world, I like being in Jingu Stadium the best of all. In an infield seat behind first base, or in the right field bleachers. I love all the sounds, the smells, the way I can sit there just gazing up at the sky. I love the breeze caressing my skin. I love sipping an ice-cold beer, observing the people around me. Whether the team wins or loses, I love the time spent there most of all. Of course, winning is much better than losing. No argument there. But winning or losing doesn't affect the weight and value of the time. It's the same time either way. A minute is a minute. An hour is an hour. We need to cherish it. We need to deftly reconcile ourselves with time and leave behind as many precious memories as we can. That's what's the most valuable. The first thing I like to do when I take my seat at the stadium is have a dark beer, a stout. But there aren't many vendors selling dark beer at the stadium. It takes time to locate one. When I finally locate one, I raise my hand and call out. The vendor makes his way over. A skinny young guy, undernourished looking. He has longish hair probably a high school student doing this as a part-time job. He comes over, 
and the first thing he does is apologize. I'm sorry, but all I have is dark beer, he says. No need to apologize, I say, reassuring him. I mean, I've been waiting a long time for someone selling a dark beer to come by. Thank you, he says, and cracks a cheerful smile. I imagine this young bender will have to apologize to lots of people this evening. I'm sorry, but all I have is dark beer, since most people at the stadium probably wanted regular lager. I pay him for the beer and leave him with a small word of encouragement. Good luck to you. When I write novels, I often experience the same feeling as that young man. I want to face people in the world and apologize to each and every one. I'm sorry, but all I have is a dark beer. But no matter, let's not get into novels here. Tonight's game is about to begin. I'm praying that our team wins. But at the same time, quietly stealing myself for the possibility of yet another loss. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Books podcast. We hope you enjoyed that extract. You can find out more about First Person Singular by Hiroki Murakami in the episode description. If you'd like to check out more Murakami episodes, there are links to our other related episodes in the description, including a conversation with another of Murakami's translators, Ted Goosen, and an extract from Norwegian Wood narrated by Adam Sims. What did you think of the extract? We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at Vintage Books on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next time, keep reading boldly and thinking differently. Thank you.